Hello and welcome to The Conversation Weekly. In this episode, we ask a big question. Who is trying to make money from the oceans? And is it sustainable? The small number of corporations generate most of the revenues from ocean-based industry. And why Brazilian women who lived through Zika are avoiding getting pregnant during the COVID-19 pandemic. There's this sense of uncertainty and panic that women can relate throughout both crises. I'm Gemma Ware in London. And I'm Dan Marino in San Francisco. You're listening to The Conversation Weekly, the world explained by experts. Gemma, I was really intrigued by the story that came out a few months ago. It was about a robot that got stuck at the bottom of the Pacific Ocean. Yeah, I remember. It was trying to mine the seabed, right? Yeah, it was a prototype deep sea mining robot called Patania 2. It was on the seabed four kilometers down looking for small rocks rich in precious metals. But the cable that connected this robot to its mothership got disconnected in an accident. That's a bad accident to have that far down under the ocean. Yeah, super deep and pretty crazy because the Belgian company that owns the robot did actually manage to find it and reconnect with it and keep on testing and mining. So I'm guessing it was an expensive robot and they just didn't want to leave it down there. That's right. Super expensive and kind of at the forefront of a new wave of activity from companies looking to mine the seabed for minerals. But operations like this are part of a bigger story about how the business of the ocean is booming. Yeah, and this is one of the themes that's emerged from a series that The Conversation has been running over the past few months called Oceans 21, which has been examining the history and the future of the world's oceans. A key question this series looks at is what the economic exploitation of our oceans, for everything from minerals to fishing to oil and gas, is doing to the ocean environment. Researchers, and to some extent governments, are increasingly realizing just how important it is to consider the communities and people who've depended on the ocean for generations. So I've spoken to three experts to help explain what's happening today. First, let's put things in perspective with a question. How much money is actually being made from the oceans? My name is Jean-Baptiste Jouffre. I'm a postdoctoral researcher at the Stockholm Resilience Center at Stockholm University. A couple of years ago, the OECD came up with a report estimating the ocean economy worth 1.5 trillion US dollar. You have several estimates, but they are within this range of, of 1.5 up to 3 trillion US dollar. The OECD also expects the ocean economy to double in size by 2030. And many ocean-based industries today are growing faster than the global economy, and in many cases exponentially. Jean-Baptiste's research is trying to understand this new reality. And how we can make it more sustainable and more equitable. In a recent research paper, Jean-Baptiste and his colleagues came up with a new term to describe what's happening to our oceans. We dubbed what we observed in the ocean as the blue acceleration, because it describes a new phase in humanity's relationship with the ocean that shows a rapid acceleration on the onset of the 21st century across the whole range of ocean use. Humanity has used the ocean for millennia uh, as a source of food, as a mean of transportation. Really, the seeds of globalization is the ocean space, right? But <laughs> today's use of the ocean is unprecedented in their diversity and in their intensity. In the paper, there's a startling set of graphs, sector by sector. The paper shows just how fast this acceleration has been happening over the past few decades. He says that the ways ocean are being used can be broadly summarized into three things that humanity needs. We're using the ocean for food. 
we're using the ocean for material, and we're using the ocean for space. So using the ocean for food, intuitively that would be seafood, but we use it also for farming with the rapid growth of the aquaculture. Now the ocean also contributes indirectly to nutrition through what's called feeds or nutraceuticals. So those molecules that are taken from some marine organisms or used to feed your cows on land. So fish meal and fish oil, for instance. Next are those industries using the ocean for material. That's going to be all the hydrocarbons. The oil and gas industry is the largest ocean-based industry today, by far. There's a whole prospect for renewable energy in the ocean. Offshore wind farm being the most advanced today, and you can think of wave as well or salinity gradient. Um, but it's also going to be seabed mining. So we're going for the ocean for minerals and metals. It's also counterintuitively fresh water because increasingly we're desalinating seawater and turning it into fresh water. Today there are more than 16,000 desalinization plants across the world and globally it's close to 65 million cubic meter of seawater salinated every day. Some businesses are looking to the oceans for genetic resources too. You see this rapid increase in sampling of DNA because marine organisms, many of them have evolved in extreme condition of temperature, pressure, salinity, lack of light that makes their genetic material particularly interesting for commercial use. And finally, there's the vastness of the ocean itself. And I'm talking here about physical space. Think about communication. Nearly 1 million kilometers of fiber optic cables have been laid on the seabed just over the past 20 years. Ocean space, it's pipeline, it's also maritime transport, shipping. The global shipping, it's 80% of the global trade by volume, 70% by value. It's going to be tourism and recreation, land reclamation, so the building of artificial islands. It's, of course, conservation. And then you have all the military activities or the territorial boundaries that are at play in the ocean sphere. So those are just a few examples, but it gives you a sense of the absolutely unprecedented time that we're living in. And with all those hopes and aspiration for the ocean to deliver as the next frontier for human development. So who is behind this massive economic investment in our oceans? If there is a race to the ocean, who is racing and, and who's benefiting from it, or rather who's left behind? In fact, you realize that a small number of corporations headquartered in just a few countries generate most of the revenues from ocean-based industry. So we, we named them the Ocean 100 <laughs> in the spirit of Forbes 500 and Fortune's 100. And aggregating across all industries, the 100 largest corporation account for 60% of total revenues. And interestingly, nearly half of those are oil and gas companies. Despite an exponential growth in renewable energy over the past two decades, only one offshore wind company appears in the Ocean 100 list. Not only are the revenues from the ocean concentrated in the hands of a select group of corporations, these corporations are based in just a handful of countries. So half of all revenues end up in just seven countries, right? The, the United States of America, Saudi Arabia, because of Saudi Aramco, the, the largest oil and gas companies very active in offshore, China, Norway, France, the UK and South Korea. So you, you really have that geographical pattern. It's, it's poorly distributed. A small group of companies are making huge amounts of money off of this blue acceleration. And you're probably not going to be surprised to learn that this economic expansion is having a dramatic and often negative effect on the ocean environment. As our ability to industrialize the ocean grows, marine ecosystems face cumulative pressures from all those human activities, but also from climate change. And think of ocean acidification, 
seawater temperature rise, overfishing, um, increasingly underwater noise due to all those activities, whether it's vessels or sonars or building and everything. Oil leaks, we have sadly many examples of, of oil leaks or accidents. Ship strikes, uh, striking big mammals, and of course, all over the news, plastics. That's just to name a few. And of course, this scramble for the seas also pose issues of equity and benefit sharing. The ocean acceleration covers tons of different areas. But one aspect of this that is just in its infancy, but expected to be a big player in the future, is deep sea mining. Anna Taxas helped explain. I'm a professor of oceanography, Dalhousie University on the east coast of Canada in Nova Scotia. And I study ecosystems that live on the seafloor. One part of the ocean is of particular interest to companies, the Clarion-Clipperton Zone. It's an area around the size of the continental U.S. and is right in the middle of the Pacific Ocean. I'll let Anna describe what it looks like. You'll see sediment, you see soft sediments. It looks like mud, right? A lot of mud. And then sitting on top of that mud are this little dark rocks, potato-sized rocks. And so this can go on for kilometers, right? So tens of kilometers. And how many of those rocks you will see depends on where you are. The seafloor is mostly flat. It has a bit of undulation, but for the most part, compared to the rest of the ocean, it's a relatively flat area. So what are these little potato-sized rocks? They're little bits of shell or rock or something, very small. What has happened, geology over time, they have accumulated sediment, mud, stuff that rains down, and they form this hard rock. And so it has taken millennia to form that rock. But this rock isn't just lifeless. There is a lot of animals that live in the mud, and there's also research that shows that there are animals that live specifically on those rocks. Some of them live for a very long time. So these are things like, you know, deepwater corals or sponges. And a lot of them are really quite spectacular animals. And some of them, yeah, can live for decades to hundreds of years. So they're unique occurrences. We haven't seen this particular species anywhere else. Um, And there's a lot of diversity of smaller things that live inside the sediment. These rocks, or nodules as they're technically called, sitting on the bottom of the Pacific Ocean also play a big role in the global climate cycle, kind of like rainforests do on land. They're a carbon sink. A lot of the carbon CO2 that gets absorbed by the ocean eventually makes its way down to the deep sea, to that sediment, and then gets buried. And so you start moving things around, all of a sudden you're affecting how much carbon has been sequestered, how much carbon is sitting within that sediment, and then you have other implications. Disturbing those sediments could disrupt the carbon sequestering process and potentially release a lot of carbon dioxide trapped in the mud itself. But it's not the mud that has gotten deep sea mining companies' interest, rather the nodules sitting on top of it. They aren't made of gold, but they are rich in minerals such as manganese, cobalt, and nickel. So there is a group of industry that believes that we do not have enough mining on land to cover our future needs, particularly when it comes to technologies that are developed to reduce uh, greenhouse emissions. And so, for example, you know, car batteries and solar panels require those metals. And so there is a projection that if we want to go 
green on that side, then we need to get more of those other elements. And rather than increase mining on land and keep destroying land, why not go to the deep sea and destroy the deep sea instead? These nodules on the seabed in the Pacific aren't the only mining prospects. Companies are also looking at hydrothermal vents, where hot gases and water come spewing up from beneath the earth. Mining companies want to collect the solidified minerals around these vents and extract metals from them. Another area of interest are underwater mountains, some of which are covered in crusts of cobalt. For all this interest, though, there's no actual mining happening, at least not yet. That prototype robot we mentioned earlier, the Batania II that got lost at the bottom of the Pacific Ocean, that was just a proof of concept for this idea of deep ocean mining. And that's the stage we're at here, a handful of companies trying out different technologies to see what works. It's a process that is slowly moving forward. Um, it's not a simple thing to mine at four kilometers depth, right? I mean, there is engineering challenges. There. So in part, this is what has slowed things down, is actually developing those technologies. Anna says there was a Japanese effort a few years ago, but also just to prove a concept. Small scale, shallow water. No one is mining the deep sea floor on a commercial scale yet, but plenty of companies are trying and plenty are getting the legal side of things ready so that they can mine as soon as the tech gets there. So what does that legal world look like? Who owns the sea floor in the middle of the ocean? And who decides who gets to mine there? The International Seabed Authority is a body that has been put in place as part of the United Nations Law of the Sea Convention. And their job is to regulate activities on the seafloor beyond national borders. It has an assembly, it has a council, and so it is this body that gives out the contracts. Countries have to apply for these contracts, and then companies from those countries can take up the mining exploration. So there's companies on behalf of Germany, there's companies on behalf of the UK, of France, China, Japan, uh, Korea. There are a total of 31 contracts that have been given at this point. 19 of those are in that area we're talking about in the Central Pacific for polymanganese nodules and a few more out of the Indian Ocean. And then there are some that are for the polymetallic sulfides, which are the hydrothermal vents. So there's seven of those. And then there are five for cobalt crusts, which are the crusts on the seamounts. This is all very new. An international framework is still being developed that would regulate the actual mining of these tracts of the seafloor that have been given to each country. So there are regulations that have been improved for exploration, and now we're still working on the rules for exploitation. They were supposed to have those regulations in place by a year ago, June 2020. But given how slow the process is, it was unlikely that that was going to happen by then. But now with COVID, it has become even, you know, more slowed down. Anna told me she was nervous about the lack of progress on these regulations for one specific reason. If any of the mining companies that hold a permit says they are ready to start mining, the International Seabed Authority has just two years to get the regulations in order so that the company can start mining. Those regulations are not ready. I don't think we're anywhere where we have consensus on how to proceed. 
Another issue is that these contracts were given out before anyone agreed on environmental management plans for many of these areas. Let's say, for example, you want to put a marine protected area in a particular place that you think it's important. Well, if that place has been given out to a contractor already, you can't take it back and say, oh, give us that back now because we want to protect it. it I mean, it, you can, but it's difficult, right? It's not a simple process. All of this demonstrates the competing interests at work here. On one hand, commercial ventures, keen to exploit the ocean's vast resources. And on the other, the need to manage the ocean environment. But there's a third aspect to this, the people that rely on the ocean and have been for generations. When the ocean is turned into a big money-making scheme, it can have real impact on these people's lives. My name is Ife Sinachi Okafoyawud, but I'm happy to be addressed as Ife. Ife, who's originally from Nigeria, is currently a lecturer in sustainable development at the University of St. Andrews in Scotland. A lot of her work has focused on how development of the ocean is affecting maritime security, particularly in the Gulf of Guinea in West Africa. The, the Gulf of Guinea region is a vast uh, expanse of the ocean that stretches up to 6,000 kilometers from Senegal to Angola and including the island nations of Sao Tome and Principe and uh, Cabo Verde. For the people who live here, the ocean is a key part of their livelihoods. People rely on fisheries or fish for subsistence or for food. So, for example, about 80% of the animal protein consumed in coastal communities across West and Central Africa is from fish. And sometimes it's actually the only source of animal protein consumed by people. The ocean is also central to many traditions. It symbolizes tradition and spirituality for so many coastal communities. I am Nigerian, and so I know that, for example, in the Niger Delta area of Nigeria, there's this tradition whereby when a child is born, they would usually bait the child in the ocean to symbolize a connection, you know, with your surrounding. But unfortunately, a lot of this tradition is no longer happening. African governments are increasingly turning to the sea as a source of revenue. This could take the form of leasing offshore areas for oil and gas extraction, tourism and the related coastal development, large-scale fisheries agreements with other countries, and shipping, of course, which requires the construction of new ports. And most recently, we're also seeing so many countries investing in blue power generation as we look for alternative way of solving the climate problem. But also at the same time, the people are increasingly exploiting resources because, well, this is the only thing they know. And in doing that, sometimes it might mean doing it at a rate that is not necessarily sustainable. How is the ocean doing in all of this? The ocean is obviously this third and important player between the states, the people. How is she faring? Unfortunately, not so well. Take the Niger Delta, a region in Nigeria where oil exploitation have resulted in extensive pollution to the point that an estimated 60% of uh, fisheries that breed in the Gulf of Guinea region breeds in the mangrove of Niger Delta. However, due to the extensiveness of pollution, more than 40% of the mangrove vegetation in the Niger Delta is more or less dead due to pollution. So this have, of course, resulted in depletion of fish stock, pollution of the farming areas of the mangrove, which meant that the people, especially women, that will rely on, on mangrove resources for subsistence, no longer have that source of livelihood. 
This degradation of the fisheries is making people incredibly vulnerable, says Ife. Some decide to fish illegally in the waters of neighboring countries, which has created conflict. Others become easy targets for criminals. I have seen examples through my research of people that actually end up acting as informants for criminals, you know, in relation to piracy, people acting as lookouts. And in other areas, the fishers are able to use their navigational skills to actually support these criminals. The next thing, you have proliferation of drug trafficking in coastal areas. And for the women, majority of who actually trade this seafood and, and then the money goes back to supporting their kids. Unfortunately, we're also then seeing this whole practice of sex for fish increasing where they are coerced to give sexual favors in exchange for ensuring steady supplies of the fish. And this is practically just some of, unfortunately, the cyclical relationship between the pressure on marine resources, primarily fisheries, and how it is affecting the people. Ife says it doesn't have to be like this, though. She recently published a story for The Conversation based on her research showing what does and what doesn't work when it comes to the management of blue economy projects in Africa. There have been success stories of, of how things have worked. We have the example of the Mikoko Pamoja in Kenya. This is in regards to mangrove restoration. This is something that is happening a lot. So many people are making the argument around how mangrove restoration can be used as a way for storing carbon and then sale of carbon credit. Mikoko Pamoja have shown that this can work if it's community-led but supported by the experts. But solutions like this are very small scale compared to some of the larger projects happening, such as a plan to build a new port or an offshore oil refinery. These can displace entire fishing communities. Often the people aren't offered compensation at all. And even when they are, it doesn't often come through. Moving forward, as countries on the African continent are keen to harness the resources in their waters, they must actively engage the coastal communities. They must work with them to decide what is best for them and, and how they can actually go about mitigating some of the problems they might encounter in the process of that development. Jean-Baptiste Jouffre is also concerned about how the blue acceleration is benefiting some at the expense of others. But he thinks there are few ways to make the economic boom more equitable. These focus on sources of money. And one in particular focuses on putting pressure on the banks that loan corporations the money they need for these large projects. An example of that is sustainability-linked loans. So bank loans of external financing for a company, if they want to build a new vessels or new factory or a new oil rig. And loans come with covenants, which are contracts between the, the lender and the borrower stipulating what the borrower can or cannot do. Most of those requirements today are, are financial, but they could be taking into consideration sustainability criteria as well. And we're seeing example of that where the uh, interest rate is coupled to the sustainability performance of the company. So the better the company performs in terms, let's say, of transparency or disclosure, or when it comes to the seafood industry, we have reduction of antibiotic use and increase in eco-certification, then the better it performs sustainably, the lower the interest rate, which suddenly create a very strong incentive for corporation to actually do things better. So it, it's gaining momentum, but it's still the exceptions rather than the norm. Jean-Baptiste says that the fact that the ocean economy is booming and that more and more people are looking to make money from the oceans is not an intrinsically bad thing. 
I just think it's a reality. And so we have to deal with it, right? Either you sit back and watch those companies operate the way they do, or you try to engage and steer them in a better direction. You can read more analysis by Anna Metaxas, Jean-Baptiste Jouffre, and Ife Okafor-Yarwood on theconversation.com. Yeah, and if you want to hear more about what the next decade means for the oceans, you can tune into a free webinar we're running next week. It's hosted by UK Environment and Energy Editor Jack Marley, who will be joined by Jean-Baptiste to talk about the ocean decade and how the next 10 years can chart a new course for the Blue Planet. We're going to take a quick time out here to tell you about another podcast that we think you'd enjoy. If you're hungry for more compelling discussion about the latest scientific breakthroughs, check out a podcast called New Scientist Weekly. I just listened to a recent episode where they dug into what's happening with methane and why cutting methane levels from industry and agriculture is so important to reducing global warming. Each week, a panel of journalists from The New Scientist and their guests discuss the biggest news in science, from the environment to health, technology, or space. It's fun and super informative. Give it a listen. Search for New Scientist Weekly wherever you get your podcasts or head to newscientist.com slash podcast. Now for our second story this week, we're joined by our colleague Catesby Holmes in New York. Hello again, Catesby. Hi, everybody. Thanks for having me. Hi, Catesby. So what's the story you're telling us today? Today, I'm going to take you to Brazil, which is a global epicenter of the coronavirus pandemic. But just a few years ago, it was also the global epicenter of Zika. Brazil, which has been hard hit by the virus spreading through parts of South and Central America. Remember Zika virus? I do. It stopped a lot of people traveling in and out of South America for months, right? Right. And Brazil has had two back-to-back pandemics. Zika has kind of been overshadowed by COVID-19. But the COVID-19 outbreak got me wondering about the legacy of Zika. Catesby, can you give us a quick refresher on Zika? What's the illness? How do you catch it? What's going on there? So Zika is a tropical mosquito-borne disease like dengue or chikungunya. The symptoms are generally mild. They include a fever and a rash, although I know some people in Brazil who got totally knocked out by Zika in 2015. But the risk is greatest of Zika for people who are pregnant. The Zika virus, if you remember, can cause serious birth defects and even stillbirths. Uh, Between 2015 and 2017, about 3,700 babies in Brazil were born with a Zika-related congenital malformation that's called microcephaly. Doctors are seeing a spike in infants with microcephaly, the birth defect which results in an abnormally small head. What's happened to those children? They're about four, five, or six years old now, and some did begin to develop normally within a few years. But other children born with microcephaly face enormous difficulties eating, walking, talking, seeing, and they require highly specialized care. So that made me wonder about whether women in Brazil, having been through the Zika pandemic, were worried about pregnancy during COVID-19. And in April, Brazilian officials actually asked women to avoid getting pregnant. That's a request that, as far as I know, no other country has made. So if you're a woman in Brazil who wants to have a baby, it's been a really difficult couple of years and a really tough decision to, to make. Yeah, I should think so. And that's what researcher Leticia Martelletto has been working on. Her research looks at how Zika and COVID-19 have had what she calls a scarring effect on women's attitudes about getting pregnant in Brazil and their desire to even have children at all. 
I'm Leticia Marteleto. I am a professor of sociology at the University of Texas at Austin, and I'm a social demographer. So I study inequalities in low and middle income countries. My team and I have been studying consequences of the Zika epidemic in Brazil, specifically for women's reproductive health and fertility, desires, uh, intentions, and behaviors. And most recently, we also added uh, consequences of the COVID-19 pandemic to women's reproductive health and fertility behaviors in the Brazilian context. What led you to look at the parallels between Zika and COVID? It sounds like perhaps you hadn't originally anticipated a global pandemic. No, not anticipated at all. We were conducting fieldwork in the state of Pernambuco in Brazil when the pandemic hit. Pernambuco was the state in Brazil, one of the states most affected by Zika and by microcephaly or congenital Zika syndrome. And we had to pivot our research, and we couldn't, of course, do our face-to-face interviews anymore. We had to switch to non-contact modes of interview. And when we started doing that, we started hearing from women that they had concerns in terms of getting pregnant, how not to get pregnant, contraception, healthcare. And that's what led us to also include the consequences of the COVID pandemic. So how did you go about your research and how many women were involved? We interviewed 56 women through Zoom. We had a list of questions we wanted to ask them, but we also let them speak more freely about their thoughts and feelings about Zika and COVID. But then we also at the same time had 3,996 women in which we applied the questionnaire over the phone between May and uh, October 2020. And what did you find so far? So some of our findings are that women are concerned about a COVID pandemic. They do relate Zika with COVID in that both are public health shocks that left them with lots of uncertainty. Early on, they did not know how they could avoid the disease, the virus, how it was transmitted. And so there's this sense of uncertainty and panic that they can relate throughout both crises. Can you tell us a little bit about how these women experienced Zika, especially the ones who may have had children during the epidemic? I will start by the differences between poorer and richer women. All of them were very concerned and scared with having a child during the Zika epidemic. But richer women had a sense of autonomy over their bodies and they felt that they could prevent Zika. We often had women relating to us how they would spray themselves and everywhere around them and they would wear long sleeve shirts and some mentioned that they would have their babies out of Brazil. So they had this sense that they could do something, whereas uh, poor women had this sense of fatalism. There was a generalized sense of stress and um, that women were really, really afraid of having a baby with microcephaly. How exactly are women who've been through Zika changing their attitudes about getting pregnant during the current pandemic? So let me read you a few quotes that we have from uh, women in the state of Pernambuco. The recommendation is that if you want to get pregnant, that you wait for it, as it was with the Zika epidemic. 
Zika e Covid são muito parecidos. Zika e Covid são muito similares porque é o mesmo sentimento de medo e ansiedade, certo? E agora eu tenho que cuidar de mim e eu tenho que cuidar deles todos e todo o tempo. Todo o tempo. I think that really speaks to the women feeling this uncertainty and making connections, even if the diseases aren't the same and don't have the same modes of transmissions or even the same effects on pregnancy. So tell us what we know about how COVID may affect pregnant women and how that compares to the way that we now know that Zika affected pregnant women. Right at the start of COVID, when, it, you know, the first cases were reported, there were a lot of unknowns on if COVID could be transmitted through the placenta. And then in July of last year of 2020, the CDC issued a report saying that uh, pregnant women were more likely to develop the severe form of the disease. And so that was a first specific finding. And then also by now we know that there were higher cases of stillbirths. And in the specific context of Brazil that we are talking about, there have been some scientific publications showing higher mortality of pregnant women. In Brazil as well, AstraZeneca vaccine that has been one of the main vaccines in the country that has been associated with the death of one pregnant woman. And so the Ministry of Health there has uh, stopped vaccinating pregnant women. You can imagine how this brings fear, uncertainty and anxiety specifically for pregnant women as this time is already a time of uncertainty just by the nature and the changes that a pregnancy and a child bring. So, And in Brazil, where 54% of the population is Black, we know from past research, including your own, that there's deeply embedded structural racism there, including in access to healthcare. So I'm wondering if your study found similar differences related to race or class in women's feelings about their um, reproductive behavior or their reproductive desires. Black women do experience racism in the healthcare system. Also, we know that women of lower socioeconomic status, poor women, have felt the consequences of the pandemic at higher rates. One study that we are just finalizing, it's unpublished, but it was presented uh, recently at a professional conference. We learned that Black women, they scar differently from uh, non-white women in that higher proportions of Black women feel that they would like to avoid the pregnancy at higher rates and they were close to people in their network who had Zika that affects that desire not to have a pregnancy during COVID at a higher rate. For white women, on the other hand, they feel that they can just postpone a pregnancy. This uh, suggests that uh, for black and pardo women, and pardo are the mixed race women, so navigate a health system in which they have to, you know, look for a contraceptive to really have autonomy over their bodies. It's a really difficult situation. So when they have this extra shock and uncertainty, they prefer to forego a pregnancy. You referred just now to the scarring effect of Zika. Tell me what you mean by scarring. Less than three years after the end of the Zika epidemic, COVID hit. So the Brazilian women, specifically of childbearing ages, had just felt a public health shock centered on reproductive health. Three years later, they experienced another shock. Our research has shown that after the Zika epidemic, fertility rates went down in Brazil. And fertility went down at higher rates in the states that were more affected by Zika. So 
that speaks to a behavioral consequence, right? So it's not just the disease in itself, but it's what the disease generates in terms of uh, women wanting or not wanting to have babies. So that's what we are talking about, scarring. And in fact, I know it's preliminary data, but you're starting to see that a birth rate reduction is occurring in Brazil during the coronavirus pandemic, just as it did during Zika. Is that correct? Yes, there are signs of decline in births in Brazil, though I'd like to highlight, as you mentioned, that this is preliminary data, so it's subject to change, but we can perceive some declines. It's also important to mention that when the Zika epidemic ended in 2017, in 2018, we saw uh, some increases, and then we have seen declines since then, since 2018 up to now. So it is a general trend of decline even before the pandemic hit. And uh, we attribute that to the economic crisis, political crisis, and again, to scarring, right? So fertility never went back to the levels pre-Zika, right? So if you get the long term, the trend, the fertility trend of that decade, you do see that after the Zika epidemic, it never went back to the higher levels before the Zika epidemic. So we cannot talk about a baby boom after the Zika epidemic, nor a really baby bust, but we can talk about a trend of decline. So what's next for this project? I know you didn't expect COVID when you started studying Zika. So now that you've looked at the intersection of these two, what's your next steps? Just last week, we started wave two of the survey. What that means is that we are re-interviewing the same 3,998 women that we interviewed last year. So this means that we are talking to the same women at two points in time and we will be able to examine changes in those desires and intentions. This will give us two moments in the pandemic, right, early on and a year later. So we'll be able to infer change in terms of reproductive health, fertility desires. So there's a lot that we can learn there. Well, thank you very much, Leticia, for talking with us today. Muito obrigada. Muito obrigada. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks so much, Catesby. Thanks for having me. And I think it's going to be really interesting to see what Leticia comes up with in her next round of surveys with these women that she's been following for the past year, because Brazil actually canceled its 2020 census due to the coronavirus pandemic. So she's going to be bringing to light data that the rest of the country may not know about fertility and how that's been affected by not only the COVID-19 pandemic, but the Zika pandemic as well. In the meantime, we'll put a link to her story in the show notes to this episode. To end the show this week, here's one of our colleagues at The Conversation in France talking about a new podcast series that she's been working on. Hello, everybody. I'm Françoise Marmoyer, membership editor for The Conversation based in Paris. Recently, we published in French a series of podcasts entitled Which Democracy? and produced with the Institute of Advanced Studies for Science and Technology. Democracy can be thought of as power of the people, but it's not exercised in the same way everywhere. The countries that have chosen the system, or claim to have chosen it, each apply it with their own history, their own institutions, their own aspirations. In some countries, the COVID-19 crisis had an impact on the exercise of democracy. 
In the first episode of our series, we asked ourselves if the French democracy was in crisis. Pierre-Henri Tavoyot, lecturer in philosophy at Sorbonne Université, led this reflection for us. We talked about the democratic challenges that France is facing today, from the growing mistrust of the elites to Emmanuel Macron's criticized management of the pandemic. In the second episode, we observed the upheavals of the American democracy after four tumultuous years of Donald Trump's tenure and the election of Joe Biden in a climate of unprecedented contestation, what is the current state of American democracy? Historian Sylvie Laurent, a senior lecturer at Sciences Po and a research associate at Stanford and Berkeley universities, answered our questions. Thanks for listening. That was Françoise Marmoyette in Paris. That's it for this week. Thanks to all the academics who've spoken to us for this episode and to the conversation editors Hannah Hogue, Jack Marley, Françoise Mamouillette and Stephen Kahn and to Alice Mason and Imriel Morgan for our social media and marketing. And a big old thanks to Catesby Holmes too. Catesby, you want to tell the people where to get in touch? You can find us on Twitter at TC underscore audio, on Instagram at theconversation.com or email us on podcast at theconversation.com. And if you want to find out more about any of the things we talked about on the show today, there are links to further reading in the show notes. You can also find a link there to sign up for our free daily email. And if you enjoyed the show, please do give us a follow and a review wherever you listen. It really does help the show. The Conversation Weekly is co-produced by Mend, Marawani and me, Gemma Ware, with sound design by Eloise Stevens. Our theme music is by Nita Sol. And I'm Dan Marino. Thanks, y'all.